Well, good morning, and, uh, and welcome to St. Rose Community Church. I invite with you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to uh, the Gospel of Mark, where we have been uh, for the past year or so. And we're going to be in uh, verses, or chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. And, uh, and if you do not have a Bible with you, uh, that's not a problem. We've got, we've got many copies, so if you want to slip up your hand, if you don't have a Bible, one of our church members uh, will get one to you. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. And as, as you turn there, I want you to ponder, I want you to ponder this word. I want you to ponder greatness. What do you think of when you think of greatness? What do you think of when you think of someone being great? We live in a world that is obsessed with the superlative. We live in a world uh, where, where people are obsessed with this idea of who's great, who's the greatest. We ha- even have a popular slang word, which when I say it, you'll probably know what it is, the goat, right? The greatest of all time. It's a po- I don't know if it's in the dictionary, but it probably is. Uh, we have shows and debates and championships, uh, all to figure out that question. Who's the greatest? Is it MJ or is it LeBron? Who's the greatest basketball player? Who's the greatest, um, who's the greatest, you know, uh, musical artist? We've, we are pushed to climb the ladder of corporate success so we can be great. We see examples on social media of influencers who have dubbed themselves the greatest parents, the greatest husbands or wives, the greatest dancers or, or whatever. Uh, and, and greatness is not just that, but greatness is something that we all strive for, is it not? Greatness is something that we all have our eyes on. Don't all of us in this room want our lives to count? We all have that urge in our lives that we want our lives to mean something. We want, we want to be here for an important purpose. We dream of glory. We dream of, of winning. We dream of greatness. But this morning in our text, Jesus shows us what godly greatness looks like. In our text this morning, we see Jesus show that he is great because he has accepted the plan of the crucifixion. We see Jesus redefine for us what greatness is. And then lastly, we see Jesus exemplify greatness. And as he tends to do, as we've seen multiple times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus flips on its head what we think about something. He says, you want to be this? Well, actually, it's this. So Jesus flips on his head what greatness is. So, so as we read the text this morning, be listening as to what Jesus defines or, or, or how Jesus shows that he's great, how he defines it, just to be listening for that idea of greatness. Mark 9, verse 30 says this. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and and he was in the house, and he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they, being the disciples, kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, 
If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Let's pray for, uh, for God's help to help us to understand uh, this word this morning. Oh, holy God, we, uh, we just praise you that we've gotten to worship you this morning, that we got to confess our sins before you, and then we got to experience, even this morning, forgiveness, that you, were pier- that you sent your son Jesus to be pierced for our transgressions. Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to carry over that sense of worship even now in this moment. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand what you would have for us this morning. If it was up to me to come up with a clever manuscript, we would be in, in, in deep trouble. But it's not. Uh, it is up to your word to do the work that you've promised to do. So I just pray and plead that your, work, that your word would do the work this morning. That your word, by your spirit, would open our eyes to see, would cause our hearts to be changed. Lord, we, just, we need you this morning. Like we're dependent on you. We can't do it ourselves, so would you please act this morning and show us Jesus. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So Jesus, so far in the Gospel of Mark, has been spending the majority of his time in the, in the region of Galilee. I've actually got a map up here. I really hope that we can see it. Um, so you see up there in, in the red, you see the region of Galilee, where, uh, and you see a lot of action happening, right? All those numbers are like just are different things that Jesus has done. So, so far, we've seen him in that region of Galilee and then go up north to Tyre and Sidon. And then most recently, he has been uh, in Bethsaida, which is right there in Galilee. So I show this to say the red is where Jesus has been. That's where he's been doing his ministry. That's where he has been performing these miracles. And, uh, and so coming to verse 30 of our text, if, even if we don't know it, we're coming to a pretty significant shift in the narrative. Verse 30, if you'll look with me again, he says this, they went on from there. If you remember where there was, what has just happened? Jesus has been transfigured up on the mountain uh, in that region of Galilee, and then he came down and utter chaos was, was ensued, and he taught them about the power of prayer. So he goes on from there, and what does it say? He passed through Galilee, meaning that Galilee was no longer the place, like that was no longer the ending place where Jesus was going to be. They were passing through Galilee to get somewhere else. We follow Jesus on this journey over the next few chapters, and we actually see where Jesus and his disciples are headed. Mark 11 verse 1 says this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was on the map, but... uh, but I'm fearful that you probably can't read it because it's pretty small. It's at the very bottom is what we're getting at here. So he's passing through Galilee, and he's making his way south all the way to Jerusalem. So he's going somewhere He's going somewhere new. And this is more than just a change of direction. This is more than just Jesus saying, you know, I haven't spent much time down there. I need to make my thing. I, I, need, I need to go down there to do some ministry. But this attention to traveling south of Jerusalem shows a shift in Jesus' attention. You can almost feel it, right? The anticipation has been growing. Jesus' fame is growing more and more. Most of his, we, we know that most, most of his earthly ministry is at, this, at this point is, 
is finished, and now Jesus, the Christ, turns his face south towards Jerusalem. And what happens in Jerusalem? That would be where he was crucified. That would be where his final plan, his ultimate plan, would take place. Jesus passes through this familiar land of Galilee where he grew up, and the text says that he doesn't want anyone to know. It's like he passes through, and he's like, I'm on a new mission now. We are we're getting to Jerusalem. He wasn't there for the same purposes. And, and Jesus takes this moment to teach his disciples once again what this mission is. Because we're going south, for, we're going to south of Jerusalem for this purpose. Verse 31. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. If you remember, we're in, if you, do you guys remember a few weeks back when Brandon showed that graphic, the sandwich graphic? Remember he made it like awesome colors like meat and cheese and lettuce? Well, in the middle of that sandwich were, was a three-fold, like a, a, a thrice-repeated uh, scene that we saw. Jesus teaching what it was to happen. He was going to suffer. He was going to die. And then his disciples not understanding, and then him coming back and, and then explaining it to them even further. So we've already seen this scene happen before. In Mark 8, we saw the first one, Mark 8, 31. If this sounds familiar, it should. We just pretty much read it. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and, and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. But in Mark 9, there is one pretty big difference. There's one addition that Jesus makes. So I've, I've got it up on the screen. I've got them side by side here. Can we see it? Kind of. Uh, so in Mark 8, we just read it. But then Mark 9, I've highlighted what the difference is that we see. We see the Son of Man is in both going to suffer, he's going to die, he's going he's to rise again three days. But in Mark 9, we get this emphasis that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. So it's like this passive, Jesus is, is, is emphasizing this passive action. Like he is going to be handed over. He is going to be delivered. Who is, I mean, the question we ask is, and if Jesus is truly God, who he says he is, who's the one who has authority to hand Jesus over? Well, listen to this prophecy of, of the coming Christ in Isaiah 53, 6. We already read this. It says this. All we like sheep have gone astray. And we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord, God, is handing over Jesus to be the sacrifice for sin. What? What do we see with Jesus teaching it in this way? Why does he emphasize this passive being handed over? Well, this is where we, we encounter our first truth about greatness. This is idea that we've been talking about. What does it mean to be great? How does Jesus redefine great? Here's our first truth that we see from this text this morning is this. Jesus displays greatness through accepting the crucifixion. Jesus displays greatness through accepting the crucifixion. The crucifixion. Right, this is the plan that Jesus is, this is the plan that Jesus has accepted. It was the plan from the beginning. This is no accident. 
The, the crucifixion was no divine betrayal. There was no cosmic split. There was eternal agreement from eternity past that the Father, between the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, that, that this is how redemption was going to happen. The Son was going to be crucified. But we know from Jesus' words that this was not easy. Luke 22, we see Jesus praying this, verse 41, and he withdrew from there a stone's throw. This is right before he was crucified. And he knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then in verse 44, in the same thing, it says that he is in agony so much that he literally sweats drops of blood. So this was not easy for Jesus to accept the crucifixion. But it was the will of the Lord to do this. It was the will of the Lord, Isaiah 53.10, to crush him. We praise this glorious Jesus because he humbly and willingly accepted the will of God the Father. The plan of the crucifixion. There, there was no other way. After Jesus, And after Jesus teaches this clearly, after we see his greatness on display by him accepting this, or humbly accepting this plan, after he teaches this very clearly, something all too familiar happens. Verse 32. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid. Have we seen this before? Yeah. If you remember in Mark, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus, I mean, Peter literally takes Jesus aside and rebukes him and says, you've got this wrong, Jesus. This is not the plan. You're supposed to rule and reign in this way. And then Jesus uh, rebukes him back. See, we have this exact same scene playing out. The disciples, the disciples could comprehend that Jesus was God. Like, they could get that. The disciples could comprehend that because they've seen Christ do amazing things. They've heard him teach. They've, a few of them have seen Jesus literally transfigure before them. And God saying, this is my son. Listen to him. But... But now twice, Jesus has taught them that part of his plan, part of his greatness involved what? Suffering and death. That is what the disciples could not comprehend. They were cool with Jesus doing this, but when it came to the suffering death part, they were like, whoa, you might want to slow your roll, Jesus. That's not, that's not what greatness looks like, they thought. They, couldn't, they knew that Jesus was great, but not like this. Couldn't Jesus just display his greatness by conquering politically and like ruling and reigning and just like demolishing people and nations on earth? Couldn't Jesus just skip this part about like, okay, you're talking about suffering and death, but let's just skip over that part and, uh, and let's talk about you being glorified and going back up to heaven. Because after all, his, his disciples knew that was going to happen. And, and if they went to, if he went to heaven, they'd be there too, right? It'd be like, oh, Jesus is glorified. I'm going to be there. So that sounds pretty awesome. Jesus did choose us, right? Jesus chose us to be the disciples. So to them, death on a cross didn't look all that great. And because of that, they missed it. Because of this preconceived idea of what they thought greatness would look like, they missed this glorious plan of Jesus. They missed his greatness. And that's why they, I mean, the, the text, I love the text says, they were afraid to ask him. It's like, it's almost like they were afraid to ask him because they didn't want to know the answer. It was like, oh, we don't, well, I don't want to linger on this too much because we want to talk about glory and greatness. I don't want to talk about suffering and death. I don't, we're, we're, we don't want to know the answer. 
And after this lesson, they continue their journey south. Verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And he was in the house and he asked, What were you guys, or what were you discussing on the way? Jesus notices that there's bickering going on amongst uh, their, their, their crew. And I don't know, I mean, have you guys ever, um, have you ever been on a road trip with like your close friends, your family, and like there's that moment you come to at the road trip where you like spend a little bit too much time together, and, uh, and, and you're a little hungry, and, and you're a little not that caught up on sleep, and then every little thing that your, your friend does just irks you very badly. Uh, I can see this happening. Like, the disciples are following Jesus all over the place, and it's like, and they just start, like, bickering back and forth with one another. I can, like, feel the tension back to my high school days when we would do road trips where I just could not take my roommates any longer. I was like, oh, my gosh, deliver me. <laughs> and Jesus, he doesn't, I mean, it doesn't take a divine, like he, I mean, he is divine, but it doesn't take him, I mean, the bickering was obvious, is what I'm trying to say. Jesus, the true shepherd, turns around and asks this. I know you guys are fighting. Can you just like fill me in on what's going on? And what is their what is their response? Silence. <laughs> their response. I wasn't just like pausing for dramatic effect. That was their response. Literally silence. And uh, verse thirty four says, "But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued about what, who was the greatest." Their silence is pretty deafening. You can almost feel it with their silence, the disciples being like, yeah, we messed this one up. Like, yeah, we probably shouldn't have been arguing about this. Jesus, I mean, the irony is pretty clear. Jesus, uh, they have missed Jesus' greatness, and his greatness looked like literally humbling himself to the point of death. And now they're arguing, who is going to be great? Who will be number one? Who will be the goat disciple? <laughs> Who will have authority? Who will sit at the right hand of the Father? And the disciples in this moment, like, are oozing with pride. When we read this, something in our spirit is like, that's not right. Like, that's not good. Like, they're oozing with self, like, putting themselves up on a pedestal and, and pride. And there was no humility seen from what we can see in our text. And, and see, their society, much like ours, saw humility as a great weakness. And don't, I mean, our, our society can, does the same. I mean, just think about what, even their spiritual leaders back in the day, think about what, what the rabbis and, and the scribes did. When they, how they dressed, they wore enlarged tassels on their super souped up robes, and they symboled, and they were like, I'm spiritual, look at the way I'm dressed. Whenever the Pharisees gave, they literally brought trumpeteers to play the trumpet so people saw them give their money. When, that, when they wanted to appear as if they were humbling themselves and, and fasting and prayer, what did they do? They literally marked themselves up with like, uh, with, with put, put ashes on their head and sat there in front of everyone and was like, I am fasting. You guys should feel really sorry for me. I'm, I'm praying for you guys. And these were the spiritual models. This is, what the, this is what the disciples grew up with seeing. Pride to the highest extent. And then Jesus takes the opportunity, like he so often does, to what did we say earlier? Flip on its head what greatness looks like. Verse 35. 
And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, I know you've seen greatness look this way, but Jesus says this, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And this is not what they were expecting. Jesus sits down, he teaches them, like when he sits down, it's like, you know, he's about to say something important, like, okay, we're seated, I'm about to teach you guys something, and he says, and, and what does he teach them? Well, well, our second truth that we learn about greatness is this, truth number two, Jesus defines greatness as servanthood. Jesus defines greatness as servanthood. Jesus says, okay, you want that. You want to be first. He doesn't say it's a bad thing. I find that interesting. He doesn't say desiring greatness is bad. But he says, okay, if you want that, then aim to be the very last person on the totem pole. The disciples did not see greatness this way. We naturally don't see greatness this way. We naturally do not associate servanthood with greatness. But guess what? God does. And Jesus, as he teaches, he, he uses an object lesson, as he so often does, to help him get the point across. Verse 36, thinking about greatness, servanthood, verse 36, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him, being the child, in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives such one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus takes this child to show what godly greatness looks like. So my question is, why does he use a child? Like, what is, What's the point across that Jesus is, is trying to say by taking this child and saying, hey, receive this little one? The first thing that we, I mean, before we even dive into it, I mean, how glorious and beautiful is it to know that Jesus cares about children? Like, I love that emphasis all the time of Jesus saying, let the children come to me. Like that is such a beautiful truth to know that Jesus, the God of the universe, cares about children and how they are received. But even think with me more about what is communicated about servanthood, what is communicated about greatness with Jesus saying, receive this child to me. Just think about it like this. When we serve children, they can't do anything in return for us, can they? Like, when we serve children, uh, that's like we're humbling ourselves to say, like, we're not getting anything in return here. <laughs> when we serve children, we actually are usually saying, I, I'm accepting the fact that I'm probably going to get a net negative from this experience by serving this little one. And that's how Jesus is calling us to serve others, to serve others and not expect to be served back. Like, not having that pretense of, okay, I'm doing this for you. You're going to repay me at some point. Jesus is calling us to, to be served by others and then for no one else to know. In Matthew 5, 6, I mean, this is a, re a repeated thing. Matthew 5, 6, it says this. Jesus says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same thing? We serve others and not expecting to be served back. But also think about children in this way. Children are often weak and dependent on us. 
Serving a child means that you are meeting someone's or meeting their needs more than you care about your own needs. I know about me, I mean, Micah is a year and a half, but when I come home at the end of the day, how often do I wish, man, I wish he could feed himself. <laughs> man, I wish he could bathe himself. Man, I wish he could get dressed and put himself to bed. Uh, I, I think that sometimes because I am sinful. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so caring for, that, for my child takes self-denial. It takes me care, or I don't want to use me as an example. It takes us caring about people more than we care about our own needs. Caring for children requires self-denial. To serve those who are seemingly needy in our midst, we have to humble ourselves and see a need and meet it. Even if we've had long days and don't feel like it. We don't deserve couch time. <laughs> we, we, we are called to serve others. Not only are children needy and un unable to return the service, but but children are often forgetful, aren't they? Sometimes uh, I have, I mean, I have observed, I, I'm, like I said, Micah's a year and a half old, but I have observed people that I respect as parents, and one thing that is true amongst them is that they, they, they have long obedience in the right direction. Like, a, a lasting impact in a child's life is not one conversation over dinner where you explain the gospel and they're like, I did it, and then you never have to have the conversation again. No, it happens like life change and, and, and attitude change and understanding the gospel happens time in and time out because children are forgetful. What a lesson for us to know in serving others. I, I, I can be such an optimist. Like it, it's, it's what makes me like, like fun or whatever, but also it is to a detriment at times. Like, for instance, I, I'm leading our student ministry and like two weeks ago, after the sermon, after conversations I had with some of the students, I was like, oh man, we're ready to plant a church. <laughs> I was like, we're about to take these students and we're going to go to first, we don't need anybody else, we're going to go to First Baptist Luling and it's going to happen. Like, there's some in our midst who are going to, like, we're, we're, we're going to, like, this is, they're ready, they're ready to pastor. Uh, and then, uh, you know, a week happens and then the next week, it still went great. But it wasn't as good. <laughs> it wasn't as good for sure. And, uh, and, and I mean, the students acted like students, teenagers. And, they, and you guys are great, by the way. You guys are awesome. And I'm so thankful for you guys. But, like, uh, I, I learned a lesson in, like, being faithful week in and week out and teaching the gospel week in and week out and not getting frustrated because I know for my sake, when I was a teenager, a student, uh, I needed to be taught the gospel every single day. When I am my age now, I need to be taught the gospel every single day. It's faithfulness over a long period of time that makes a difference in serving others. And lastly, we absolutely have to strive to see how children were viewed in the ancient world. We have to know what was going on contextually or, or in the culture. See, in our culture, children are seen as adorable. Children are seen as beautiful gifts, although hard, no doubt, uh, that we get to nurture and post pictures on on Facebook and say, I got the cutest baby. But in the ancient world, children, although they were seen as a gift, was much harder. Back then, the mortality, mortality rate was so high that the majority of babies, the majority of babies 
passed away before they were five years old. And because they could not work, because the mortality rate was so high, children were thought of as not having arrived yet. They were seen as having little to no intrinsic value or worth. Jesus takes the child who had very little worth, and he says, you want to be great? Receive the one who no one else cares about. Jesus is teaching us to serve, to receive the people that no one else cares about, that no one else wants. That means God and Jesus is calling you to do things that you don't want to do. So we've talked about the lesson that's going on here. What does this look like? How, wh- what does service look like for us in this room right now? Well, I just thought through a few examples just quickly. This means like meeting up with the person that everyone else kind of avoids for, to meet up with them for coffee. To not think, oh man, to struggle to have a conversation with that person, but to intentionally go after that person and have dinner with them or coffee with them because they need Jesus just as much as you do. This looks like inviting over for dinner the couple that you sometimes avoid because it's awkward conversation with them. This looks like serving in the nursery, like literally serving the children with joy and knowing like, this is glorious. <laughs> like the people that are serving in nursery right now, like that's what Jesus is, is pleased with this morning is their service, maybe even more than what we're doing in this room. This looks like signing up for the cleaning rotation, small plug, and, uh, and, being, and, being, and joyfully doing that faithfully so that we can gather here and, and, not, and doing it behind the scenes so that people can gather to hear the gospel. This looks like waking up maybe earlier than you want to on a Sunday morning and picking up that student or picking up that elderly person who needs a ride to church and not sleeping in for an extra 15 minutes. This looks like asking how you can use your Saturdays to expand the kingdom and not save your own life. This looks like treating your server at a restaurant with kindness and treating them well and and tipping them even if they forgot something on your order. This looks like being gracious and kind to people that clean your building at work even though they make minimum wage and are at the bottom of the totem pole. This looks like seeking out ways to to not avoid the homeless people that we pass by in New Orleans, but thinking through, okay, it's unique, but how can we meet a need here? This looks like truly caring for people who are disabled and needing special care and different than us, because at the end of the day, we're all made in God's image, are we not? At the end of the day, though, we we don't serve just to make ourselves feel better. (laughs) If we served and gave ourselves a pat on the back and said, Nailed it. We would miss the point. We don't serve and then immediately post about it on Facebook. That's not what God is instructing here. We serve and we don't wish to be known. We we don't wish for it to be known. This is what godly greatness looks like. Jesus is, is redefining what greatness is. He's calling us to humbly accept this life of servanthood. And if you'll just allow me to do this, I thought this would be just maybe a, a good and appropriate time to like honor some of our church members who I've seen serve faithfully, who don't, you know, who, who haven't said, hey, I'm doing this, but like I've, we've seen you. I mean, this past Sunday, I was picking up lunch for my family and then the family, the people that we have over, had over for dinner, and I passed by Claire Camerling and, uh, and, uh, and Miss Kim right here. Hey, 
<laughs> and, uh, and I saw Claire helping Miss Kim get groceries at the, corner, at the store and her helping her in and out of the car. Claire did not want to be known. Like, she's probably mad I saw her. She's probably mad that I'm talking about, or not mad, but like, why are you talking about this in front of people? She was serving and humbly accepting that. Over the storm, there were plenty of examples. There were plenty of times to go out and serve. One of those, I'll just say, was one Saturday I was driving down Preston, one of the streets in Preston Hollow, and I just happened to look up, and, and I saw some guys on a roof, and I was like, why do those guys kind of look familiar? And as I got closer, I saw Stephen Lancaster and Jared Franklin. I know Jordan Curry was there, too, up on Miss Cynthia's roof, like putting up her shingles and then, like, YouTubing how to put on a roof and then going and doing it and then, and, like, literally, like, buying the, buying the materials out of their own pocket. Why? Because they wanted to serve. And I know Miss Cynthia is, uh, is grateful for that. This week, there was a team of seven or eight people who drove 13 hours from South Florida and stayed in these rooms on air mattresses and cots and, uh, and, and, and did insulation in our education building. And they, they worked their tails off. On Wednesday night, I left here after youth at like 8 o'clock or so, and the light was still on, and they were still working. And they had started like seven, six or seven that day. They served us well. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't ask for anything in return, but they served because they saw a need and met it. And we're so thankful for this. Serving others in this way means that others may never know about it. And my question is, are you okay with that? You should be. When we strive for greatness in this way, for godly greatness, guess what? It's not our kingdom that is, is, it's not our kingdom that is expanded, but it's God's kingdom that is expanded. And that's the goal at the end of the day, right? So we've seen Jesus display his greatness by taking on the cross. We've seen Jesus redefine greatness. And lastly, our last truth that we see this morning is truth number tr- three. Jesus, the most humble servant, exemplifies greatness. Jesus, the most humble of servants, exemplifies greatness. In our text, it's Jesus who is receiving the child. It is Jesus who is setting the example for how to serve. We're called to be like Jesus, not be like the child. We're called to be like Jesus who accepts in the child. Ultimately, it is Jesus who is the humblest of servants. Jesus was and is the most others-minded person to ever walk this earth. Randy read Philippians 2 earlier in the service, but it's pretty important for us to revisit Philippians 2 at this point and just and then take, about, take with what we know about servanthood and greatness and apply it to this. Philippians 2 verse 4 says this, Have this, or let this, let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he what? He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, according to Philippians 2, takes on the form of a servant. He humbly accepted this life of servanthood. 
Jesus did not only teach about servanthood, but he became what he, or not, he was what he taught on. Verse 35, and Jesus sat down and he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. How did Jesus do this? When Jesus was on earth, who did he spend his time with? Did he spend his time with the religious elite? Did he spend his time with people who could help him gain up the social ranks? No. <laughs> he spent time with the tax collectors and sinners. So much so that it became a problem with other people. He said, why do you spend time with those people? Jesus came as a friend to the hopeless. He came as a friend to the lost. He came as a friend to the least of these and praise God he did, because guess what? You and I in this room, we are the least of these. In this passage, we, 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 can, see, we can be seen uh, as the little ones that Jesus welcomes. Because of sin, we are like needy children. Galatians 4 says this, In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts, saying, Abba, Father. So you are, you are no, no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Jesus has taken us needy children, children without a home. And he has taken us into his arms and adopted us as sons and daughters. He, being Jesus, loves us and serves us even when we act like children and we can't serve him back or don't serve him in any way. Jesus has loved and served us even when we are weak and dependent on him and forgetful. He has loved us and served us even when we forget his gospel every single day. Day. He loves us and serves us even when we were enemies of him and we run from him. He has loved us and served us by giving his own life. Mark 10, 45 says, For the Son of Man not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is the best news. Like, this is really good news because here's the deal. I'm going to level with you. We fail at serving others pretty often. There's not a week that goes by that we don't miss opportunities to serve other people. We're inevitably going to think of ourselves as too highly than we ought to. We are inevitably going to, to miss chances to like become the lowest of lows to serve others. But Jesus served perfectly. He never missed the opportunity. He never thought of himself as too high, but he humbled himself to the point of death. He obeyed the law, never sinning, and he obeyed it to the point of death, even death on a cross. And now through faith in him, we are declared righteous because of what he has done in our place. He came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And all you have to do is trust in that. 
That's almost unfair how little we have to do. Jesus did all that, and we just need to trust that he is who he says he is, and he did what he said he did. He is our humble servant. So I've got three takeaways for us this morning, thinking about greatness and servanthood. Takeaway number one is this. Seek ways to serve. Takeaway number one, simple but hard. (laughs) Seek ways to serve. Charles Spurgeon writes this. He says, The only way to get in the front of Christ's army, he who will be chief, must always be aiming to the near rank, willing to do the most humble and the most menial of tasks in the master's service. Only in this way can we rise. In Christ's kingdom, the way to go up is to go down. Seek, sink self, and you shall surely rise. Will you sink self this morning? Think through ways that you can give of yourself. Think through ways that you can give of your time, of your resources, of your energy. Be watching. Don't just say, all right, I'm going to do that. But be watching what needs you can meet in your brothers and sisters and, and also um, others. And then meet that need. Take groceries to the elderly person. Give someone a ride to church who needs a ride. Pay for someone's coffee when you go out. Clean someone's yard and don't ask for payment. This is just like simple ways. Invest in the person that you would never in a million years want to associate with if it was not for Christ in you. Seek ways to serve. Takeaway number two. Pray for humility. Takeaway number two. Pray for humility. Pray that as you serve, you would not think, of you, think to yourself, I'm doing really good right now. Because <laughs> how tempting is it to do that? When we serve to think, man, I really would like a, someone to pass by on the road here and see what I'm doing. Pray against pride. Pray for humility. Humility is one of those things that we have to be ultra dependent on the Spirit for because we can't muster up humility in our hearts. But we have to be dependent on the Spirit. So when you serve, pray for humility. And then number three, so seek ways to serve, pray for humility, and then number three, dwell on Jesus. Dwell on Jesus. Jesus is the greatest servant to ever live. Jesus is the greatest servant to ever die. And Jesus is the greatest servant to ever rise from the dead. We all fail at serving others. And when you fail at serving others, because you will, thank Jesus because he never failed. And his service applies to us by giving of his own life. Cast your mind to Calvary. Look to Jesus, the faithful servant who did it in your stead. We're going to close by, we're about to sing a song in response. And the song is called, Jesus Cast a Look on Me. It's a simple prayer asking for God's help in helping us become humble and and, and, and praying against pride. So I'm just going to read these lyrics and then we'll pray and then we'll respond by singing it. It says this, Jesus cast a look on me. Give me sweet simplicity. Make me poor. Keep me low, seeking only thee to know. All that feeds my busy pride, cast it evermore aside. Bid my will to thine submit. Lay me humbly at thy feet. 
Make me like a little child. Of my strength and wisdom spoiled, seeking only in thy light, walking only in thy might. Leaning on thy loving breast, where a weary soul can rest. Feeling well the peace of God flowing through his precious blood. In this posture, let me live, and hosannas daily give. In this temper, let me die, and hosannas ever cry. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, we just pray that you would give us opportunities to serve. We would open up our eyes to see how we can literal, little ourselves and care for other people. We pray uh, for a spirit of humility. We pray against the sin of pride that so easily creeps into all of our lives. And we pray that we would have the mind of Christ Jesus. He had every reason to be proud, and yet he humbled himself. Give us humility. And lastly, when we feel like we're failing, when we feel like we are struggling to be obedient, help us to dwell on you. Help us to, to, to look to you and not look at ourselves and say, oh, I'm failing, I'm failing. But help us to truly look up and see Jesus and throw our, throw our cares and our burdens upon him. Uh, Lord, we, we do love you. And we thank you for being our servant. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.